For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. In the hills of Pasadena today lies the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a Caltech-run NASA facility, and the birthplace of so many of the wonderful robotic explorers out there inspecting the planets that we cover right here on this show. JPL has a history unto itself, and a rich one at that. It's a wild story with all kinds of twists and turns, a, a cast of characters that is both diverse and also not so much, and which intercepts big topics in the early 20th century like communism, Scientology, and the occult. JPL's story is one of my favorites, and so I was delighted to learn about a new podcast series by M.G. Lord that is exploring its foundation from the early days of the Suicide Squad testing rockets in the Arroyos to the creation of a spin-off company we know today as Aerojet. I wanted to learn more about the podcast and the new details revealed of this story, so I invited M.G. to the show. She joins me today to scratch the surface of this incredible story. All right, so we're here today with M.G. Lord from the Blood, Sweat, and Rockets podcast. Uh, welcome to the show, M.G. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Jake. It's fun to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to talk about uh, your your podcast series here, uh, which is uh, a wild story, uh, one of my favorites about um, uh, space history, the origin of, of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, before we dig into that, though, I kind of want to just learn a little bit about you and for any listeners who, who don't know you, what's your story, uh, what's your background, and how did you find yourself telling the story of, of this uh, this thing? <laughs> how did I wind up in, in, in I, I teach, I teach, one of the many things I teach at, at USC is writing, and, not, and with nonfiction writing, I always tell my students to let their neuroses drive their stories. <laughs> and, and in my case, in the, in the early 90s, middle 90s, I guess, I had a, a best-selling book on a very different subject, Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. And publishers, you know, wanted, wanted me, you know, they would give me the opportunity because that thing had sold well to write about, you know, whatever interested me. Well, as it happened, um, I had a, a much older father who was a rocket engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I mean, there's always a, a little bit of, there's a bit of bittersweetness in this story, except I've been, you know, doing things with it for 30 years. Um, when, when I was a little girl, my mother, I'm an only child, my mother was dying of cancer. I was left with her. And my father, you know, we could have used a father. You know, what we needed was a full-time husband and father. What we had was a mid-century aerospace engineer who put, mm -hmm. you know, career over family, the public sphere over the private sphere, repression over emotion. Um, and, this, you know, I was a child. Well, <laughs> all those years later, what did I really want to find out? I wanted to find out where that damn man went. <laughs> so I spent, <laughs> I spent eight years at JPL 
And I feel that one of my great uh, accomplishments as a journalist, you know, as one of those conniving investigative journalists was, um, it was this was in the late 90s before 9-11 when security became much tighter at the JPL. But I managed to persuade them to give me a little badge with my picture on it that would allow access to the lab at any time of the day or night for my story with my principal credential as a cultural history of the Barbie doll. So <laughs> that's how it all began with, with, Gall with, with Mars Pathfinder in 1997, and it ends with the landing of the Opportunity Rover. And in that time, it's a ramble through the history of JPL, through the, through the men who founded it, who were so different from mid 20th century, buttoned down, very conformist, you know, that archetype of aerospace engineer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the cast of characters in this story is, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those situations <laughs> to me where it feels like truth is stranger than fiction. Like you couldn't write a, a, a made up a, a band of, of ensemble that, 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 as unique and interesting as this group of, of folks is, maybe maybe that's what we'll start. Um, who who are the, the the founders of this of this Jet Propulsion Laboratory? This they go by this crazy name, the Suicide Squad. Maybe give us a little bit of a rundown of of who well, these folks are. Today, JPL kind of distances itself. <laughs> I imagine from yeah. a couple of them. <laughs> they they refer they they credit the founding of the laboratory to Frank Molina, a JPL graduate student, Theodore von Karman. Um, a Hungarian emigre aerodynamicist who then ran the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech or Galsit, and um, another brilliant graduate student. We're going to talk about what happened to these guys, but um, Chen Shushen, who was a Chinese national who had studied first at MIT and then was doing his graduate work at um, Caltech and was really interested in rocketry. Then there are what the lab officially refers to as the rocket enthusiasts. Um, <laughs> that would be Jack Parsons, um, who, had a, who had a busy side hustle running satanic orgies out of his house on Orange Grove Avenue. Um, he was a devotee of Aleister Crowley. Um, I usually say parentheses, author of diary of a drug fiend, Aleister Crowley, a Satanist, or certainly an occultist, who started uh, a religion uh, called Thelema, and a, 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 so, a sort of a church, the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. And he's also part of the enthusiast group, but he was very necessary to the early experiments. A guy named Ed Foreman, a childhood friend of Jack Parsons, um, who was a tinkerer, um, who was, you know, the guy who could put all kinds of things. If anything that Molina and Chen could conceive, um, Foreman could usually cobble together out of junkyard finds. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle of the spectrum is Parsons, who did try to go to college, but he had a lot of trouble with math and he didn't get very far. 
Yeah, you know all all those words and expressions are. are I, I've never had a, a, an audio clip on this podcast in so short a time of things that I never thought I would say on on this show. It's such a weird uh, conflicts of, of of external things into what I normally just experience as my space hobby. You know, um, so it's a it's an interesting interesting turn of events. Um, maybe could we could we talk a little bit about sort of how these people come together and 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 why they came together and, and how did this all start? You know, I think uh, uh, one of the things that actually really bound them together was a child, all of them, um, was a childhood interest in um, science fiction and in the possibility of actual flight through space and off of this earth. I mean, the Jules Verne really colonized the imaginations of every one of them so that they, they you know, they weren't shut down. And... Um, and actually, the whole idea of, of not being shut down around the possibility of rocket propulsion was very important at the time. Robert Goddard, of course, had done some early experiments unlinked, you know, to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and his work was ridiculed. Even, you know, the, the New York Times suggested that, you know, it would be impossible for, yeah, for, yeah, for the for the laws of motion to work in a vacuum. Ha ha. Anyway, it caused it it caused him to just flee and not be involved with other people. Our little group was younger and braver, and they began experimenting. Parsons needed the the theoretical grounding that Molina and Chen brought to the group, and they also he also needed um, you know the the funding through the university and through other sources that were made much more available to a brilliant PhD student than mm-hmm. to, you know, a, a Satanist. <laughs> a, Satanist <laughs> a Satanist who was, you know, he was sort of, he, he was definitely kind of a, I don't know, a homegrown chemist. He knew a lot about chemistry and explosives, but not in a, I mean, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's, challenging to consider the idea of chemistry without a mathematical underpinning. My, my mm. mother taught high school chemistry and my father was a rocket engineer. So of course I became a writer and a cartoonist and you know, that, <laughs> I didn't become a Satanist because, you know, even in Satanism at that time, the roles for women were very limited. Oh, jeez. But hey, now the new director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Dr. Lori Leshen, is a woman. And um, we're going to be doing a a little in-person event on the 26th of January at um, the Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena at KPCC. An opportunity, uh, you know, to interview her. And I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience with a few other JPL engineers. That's great. I look forward to that. I know that was a real ramble. <laughs> no, all good. This is this is what I'm looking for. I mean, this this story is rambly. I mean, there's no really other way to tell it. It takes a lot of uh, interesting twists. Um, so the podcast uh, does kind of organize it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> My I wrote you know I wrote a book I wrote a book about this, but when I was thinking of the book, I wasn't really thinking of put everything in sections, and even the sections within sections have cliffhanger endings. So. Other people besides yours truly worked on the podcast, and I learned a lot about the cliffhanger ending. So, no. <laughs> That's good. 
So, so these folks get together. This is uh, this is the thirties, I think, that this is all kind of happening. Nineteen thirty-six. Thirty-six. Halloween. They're, yeah, they're blowing stuff up around uh, uh, the the hills around um, Pasadena here. Well, uh, with our with our Satan Satanist friend, very yeah. first rocket test, and many people say this is not coincidental. Was at the Devil's Gate Dam on Halloween. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Can't make that one up. No, you can't. Um, so, uh, you know, they they have a few experimental tests. Some things go right, some things go wrong, but they kind of move forward. Um, you mentioned, you know, the funding was obviously a, a pretty integral part of this. And I find it really interesting sort of how they come into some of their their grants and their funding um, and, and what they... You know, one of the earliest spinoffs of this of this group is is not JPL, but it's this company that we uh, kind of know today, a company called Aerojet. Can you talk a little bit about how that stuff kind of happened? Oh, Aerojet is really important. And one of the things that I sort of knew, but it never really hit me in a big way, you know, sort of knew when I was writing my book, but it didn't really hit me in a big way until the podcast was just how backward and how ill-prepared for a war our army was. I mean, we still had things like a cavalry (laughs) (laughs) in a war that would be largely fought by technology. But, you know, but, but, but the, but the big pivot, um, you know, in 1941 was ramping up the production of airplanes, but even then they were propeller airplanes that required long airfields to take off. And the first really brilliant thing, and we kind of have to give Parsons, the chemist, credit for developing the, the, the solid fuel, a stable solid fuel for this thing, was, um, was a JADO. JADO is an acronym because everything in space is an acronym. <laughs> JADO is an acronym for Jet Assisted Takeoff. And JADOs were devices attached to the wings of conventional aircraft. They were rockets, and they allowed uh, an airplane to take off on a short runway, like on an aircraft carrier or in the Pacific, you know, on an island. Um, And they were absolutely essential to the war effort. Well, Caltech was not in the business of being an aerospace contractor and the the powers that be at Caltech did not think it was appropriate for you know for a university to be a manufacturer even though this breakthrough had occurred under the auspices of Theodore von Karman and Gal Sitt. so von Karman um, Molina Chen Foreman another guy named Martin Summerfield incorporated as Aerojet and made these things for the U.S. Army. And enrich themselves along the way, or at least one of them did. We'll get to that story. <laughs> so they're they're making these these JADO uh, rockets. They're they're sending thousands of them, I guess. You know, to the war effort as this this goes on, making a bunch of money. But at some point, you know, the from Aerojet from Caltech, we we finally get this this entity of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So what what was sort of the the, the moment where that became a a thing? You know, an entity itself. Well, now we think of JPL as being part of NASA, which it became in 1958 with the founding of NASA. But initially it was run by the army, you know, it was, and it largely did military research into things like propulsion 
and always with a kind of, you know, with, with, the, with the goal of how can this abstract research be made useful to a weapon. Um, so the, I mean, the JPL that, that we know now really began with Explorer 1 in 1958. Um, but boy, did things get colorful after the war. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe even before the war. I mean, we're just because just because Parsons had, you know, his little Gnostic masses or satanic masses or, you know, all the well, Gnostic masses essentially parodies of Catholic ritual um, practiced in front of a naked woman, you know, little interesting variations on a theme. I, this is kind of rambly, and I will get back to your question, but I, I didn't even realize how good some of my research was for the JPL book. Frank Molina's first wife, Lillian Darcourt, was um, French, well, actually the daughter of French immigrants, 17, an art student when um, he married her. He's in his 20s. And I have actually a tape from 1999, an interview with Lillian talking about, oh my God, you know, she a firsthand account of a satanic mass with Parsons. <laughs> a, a lot wow. of interesting firsthand material. And this, this also leads into another kind of hobby that would prove very difficult after... Um, you know, after World War II and with the beginning of the Cold War, both Molina and Chen um, were, um, you know, they were they were intellectual college guys who liked discussion clubs, a little wine, a little conversation, often on dangerous ideas, and they would go to this, you know, discussion club that happened also to be Unit One Twenty Two of the Pasadena Communist Party. <laughs> Um, so, so they Molina and Chen both flirted with communism in the 1930s, but but only really flirted. And in certain ways, um, I mean, it's 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 almost comprehensible because the horrors of Stalin were not yet well known, and we were living through a depression. And Molina had come from a relatively impoverished family, Czech immigrants in Brenham, Texas. And in the 1930s, you saw this extraordinary chasm between the haves and the have-nots and some kind of impulse toward making that chasm less deep. You know, you can, it's definitely a comprehensible impulse to me. Yeah, this, yeah. this would be in contrast to our friend Jack Parsons and the Church of Salima, which was not at all about humanitarian efforts or, you know, space, you know, using, using what you just using your discoveries for the betterment of humankind. No, the catchphrase for the Church of Thelema and for um, Parsons was do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which gets a little problematic in his life too, when other people when other people wilted things that he didn't wilt, <laughs> you yeah. get my drift. We're getting getting out of line, getting getting out of timing here. But you know, for huh. a while he had this big house and he had borders in his big house, and one of the borders was L. Ron Hubbard, mm -hmm. um, future founder <laughs> of Scientology, who um, 
um, yeah, according, you know, the, um, the, the, the essential thing is in order to find people to live in his house, he placed an ad that said something along the lines of rooms for rent must not believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> so huh. Hubbard shows up and um, Hubbard shows up and Hubbard catches the eye of Parsons' then girlfriend. Um, well, this is a very long story. Um, I am definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and th- I mean, this is this is sort of what what captivates me about it. Like I said, there, there's probably it really is a truth is stranger than fiction situation because, like, how could you have a story with all of these these like you, you know L. Ron Hubbard and and Satanism and rockets and like all this communism, stuff communism. Let's not forget the communism, you know, the, the persecution of, of people like you know Melina. And Chen, who started, who ended, we deported this brilliant man whose in-laws, you know, were nationalists who fought against the Chinese, the Chinese communists, but we decided yeah. he must be a communist. So we sent him, we detained him under extremely abusive circumstances and then, you know, shipped him back to China where he started the rocketry program. It seems very um, knuckleheaded in my view. <laughs> well, you know, and that is a, a, a what if scenario that I play out all the time because the other, you know, the other story of Chen Chusen is after he was deported to China, he went on to basically found the Chinese space program. And exactly. so, you know, today, today we're looking at the Chinese space program and all the activity it's doing. And there's a lot of talk in, you know, Congress today about are we keeping up with the Chinese and all that kind of thing. And I just, I just like to imagine how that that you know that the deportation was was on the United States to begin with so there's a there's an interesting counterfactual there that I I never quite get tired of so well, I think I think Chen was still alive for the first human space flight in China mm-hmm. and that moment you know had to have been very sweet for him one imagines after yeah, yeah. what he was put through here but I, I think mean, there another... was a story of like one of the astronauts went to visit him in his deathbed or something like that one of the one of the taikonauts so and also such a weird reversal because when the um, well, we also have Nazis in this story, and the and <laughs> well, Project Paperclip, the yeah, total yeah. perversion of any kind of um, you know military justice, where we took these war criminals. Uh, Ferner von Braun was not just a Nazi; he was an SS officer, and um, we have evidence. Um, uh, in part from Annie Jacobson's book about Project Paperclip, that uh, von Braun handpicked um, handpicked Jewish scientists from other concentration camps to bring them to Mittelbau Dora, the hollowed-out mountain where, at the end of the war, the V2s were being made, and in the neighborhood of a hundred people died every day because of uh, you know beatings, abuse, hangings. Yeah. It's it's um. It's a very dark history, but getting back to von Karman and Chen and the way the tables so turned with the Cold War, von Karman and Chen um, were were led a team of U.S. scientists that went into Middle Dora, U.S. engineers and scientists when the war ended. And the, the goal was to actually have people with this kind of sophisticated education and understanding, American people go in and see what the Germans had been doing. 
So Chen was highly valued and on this essentially secret mission with von Karman until the tables turned um, mm -hmm. a few years later. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we also <laughs> talk about uh, uh, Barbie Canwright. So this is, you know, a, a story. I thought I knew this story pretty well, and I had never heard of Barbie Canwright, and I'm kind of mad about it. So maybe you can you can tell me a little bit about um, her story and, and how she became involved in, in the early days of, of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Well, often uh, women were were computers, you know, which is another word for calculators. They they were they never had. My, what, what's what's galling to me about Barbie Canwright is that her husband, Richard, kept getting promotions for doing exactly the same thing that she was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, even even as far back as the 30s and far, 40s, um, there were women computers who were absolutely who were essential to the calculations that um, that that allowed. Well, not not just. I mean, we're looking past Jados now. We're looking at the at um, the the uh, the whack the whack corporal, mm -hmm. the 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 um, the missiles that were being put together at White Sands. But yeah, I mean, the the short version with Barbie Canwright is, um, you know, she was underappreciated for her excellence in mathematics and applied mathematics, and. She and her husband also got involved in the um, Agape Lodge, that would be Church of Thelema, that would be OTO, that would be Jack Parsons, that would be sex magic. You haven't asked me about sex magic. <laughs> um, and whatever happened there um, may have been more traumatizing even than her failure to be fully appreciated as an engineer and mathematician at the lab because she had a breakdown and refused to speak of, you know, Jack Parsons or the Agape Lodge ever after, which is a big roadblock for historians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not yeah, good. Yeah. That's what we know about Barbie Canwright. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm reading up on her and stuff, and, you know, and so, so first employee, the first female employee at, at JPL, um, you know, really important work that she did in some of these early things and um that there's a line in the wikipedia article that that uh, struck me a little bit you know so she became pregnant in 1943 and they didn't have maternity leave that wasn't a thing and so she just had to resign and so that's you know she kind of leaves the story at, at that point and that's i don't know it's just kind of it's interesting to me that that there are so many uh, women like barbie that are you know, embedded in our histories that we just don't know about. And it's it's kind of wild that every time we uncover one, right? Well, you know, if you were to want to pick up my book, AstroTurf, The Private Life of Rocket Science, you would find Marsha Neugebauer, who was the first project scientist on Ranger in 1962. And Marsha experienced a similar situation. They It wasn't she was allowed to come back after her pregnancy, but they didn't want anybody, they didn't want a woman who was visibly pregnant <laughs> at the lab. I mean, and I actually, she has a hilarious quote, like, what did they think, you know, that they would slip off and give birth in the ladies' room? I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And Marsha didn't make that argument for herself, but later when she had a support staff that included one woman who was pregnant, she made a fierce case, you know, to allow women to remain 
on lab when they were still capable of doing what they needed to do and then you know to return after a short period of time it, the, she in the early 1960s I, I would credit her with kind of humanizing the maternity leave policy which had been really bizarre and draconian and obviously devastating to barbie can right yeah yeah um so uh, yeah i mean every one of these characters has a a a, a departure from this story that's worthy of its own, you know, biography. So I don't know where we want to, where we want to go, but, but maybe we can just sort of summarize sort of the, the, you know, the splitting of the suicide squad and all these folks and JPL and how they go off. Um, what are, what are the big sort of highlights for you and sort of how this story ends? Well, I mean, what I had hoped, what I hoped to achieve with this and to a degree with the book was to restore Frank Molina to his deserved position as the father of American rocketry. Let's bump out that Nazi, Von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 was a, a, a that was a you know project paperclip was not a good thing. And the fact that I mean I guess it's a it's a devil's bargain and to the victor go the spoils yeah. and these scientists were the spoils of war. But to hide their war crimes and to elevate them in the way and to make them the pub, the public face of the space program was hmm. just deeply wrong. But Molina also, you know, has like a, a has a has kind of a fantastic who wants to be a millionaire communist kind of story. I mentioned that um, that at the beginning of the war, um, Aer Aerojet Incorporated in Delaware, but over time. Um, von, von Karman got rid of his shares. I don't think Summerfield kept his shares. Um, when General, General Tire, uh, um, General Tire acquired Aerojet and turned into this big, massive uh, company, and General Tire wanted, um, wanted Parsons and Foreman out. So I believe one of the stipulations of the deal was, you know, get rid of. Um, El Diablo there. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this leaves Molina, you know, hold, still holding his stock. And, and circumstances are not good for Molina um, because, because of his 45-minute flirtation with communism in the 1930s. And it, it all comes down to the personnel security questionnaire that asked the question that haunted so many not just scientists, but also people in Hollywood and intellectuals. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? He ducked the questionnaire and Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, gave him a job working in Paris with UNESCO, um, the United Nations organization. Um, but the FBI was still closing in on him. They suspected Molina might be a spy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, which is kind of preposterous. Um, but th it's still such a great story. Now, if this were a movie, <laughs> if this were a movie, <laughs> this would be right around the end of Act Two, you know, where, where, where the, yeah, there yeah. are cars following Molina in Paris. There are, there are French agents and their big black cars on the street watching his wife, watching his kids. He's, his, his petition for a passport renewal was denied. So he's effectively imprisoned in France. He can't travel. 
and then anyway and then you know with the with when general tire acquires aerojet his shares are suddenly worth well a, a million dollars which is like you know a whole lot more than a million dollars now and all of a sudden he doesn't have to work anymore he starts a he he becomes a kinetic artist. He's always been sort of interested in, in art. He starts a magazine, Leonardo, um, which which was based at MIT, and I think it may still be based there. Have to check that. But anyway, the fact is the magazine still exists, and it deals with issues, um, you know, about the interface between visual art and science. I mean, he becomes. He becomes something almost, you know, larger than what he had been. And given his pacifism, his history of pacifism, and his ambivalence about, um, you know, ballistic missiles being used to transport nuclear warheads, I think, I think, you know, he probably missed active involvement in aerospace work. Nevertheless, you know, yeah. he was doing something compelling and exciting and his life was made financially comfortable. Um, I mean, it is really ironic, especially if he were a committed communist, that capitalism suddenly took away all his problems. I, <laughs> and I, I think JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, is very much in harmony with the idea of restoring Molina's proper luster because he really did make the extraordinary breakthroughs with, you know, hmm. I'm not, and Molina and Chen were the, really the foundation of the lab and also Theodore von Karman, who also, by the way, got in a little bit of hot water by the fifties. He was working at Columbia and, um, and he also had a, another, you know, top level gig advising at the Pentagon. And his assistant, or one of his assistants, or perhaps he was a graduate student, someone with whom he came in contact in a supervisory fashion at Columbia, was part of the Rosenbergs, you know, spy ring. So some of his Pentagon material was being whisked out of his office. I mean, it was a very odd time, the 1950s. Everything's, every. I just want to point out, Jake, that the podcast <laughs> is very well organized. It's not me (laughs) rambling. (laughs) Well, and and my my goal from this is that the listeners are are intrigued enough that they want to go and listen to it. So um, we're doing a good job getting all the highlights here. Yeah, (laughs) and you know, until we get a Netflix series that uh, that dives deep into all this stuff, uh, the podcast is a great great thing to listen to. Well, I think it would actually make great television. I think it would too. Yeah. Maybe as we kind of close up here, what's something that, I and mean, what's the most surprising or interesting thing you learned while putting this together, and you know that you didn't already know? Like, what's what's the the highlight for you as a journalist of of having something learned? Um, well, I didn't know about Barbie Can, right? There, that's something. Um, hmm. And uh, even you know, even since I had done my reporting, more details of. Um, my, you know, I worked on on that book between 1997, my book between 1997 and 2004, um, and um, more details about what was covered up by Project Paperclip have come out. So, I, you know, I think I was indignant and aghast when I first read about <laughs> Project Paperclip, 
but now I'm in mm-hmm. some some way not even quantifiable level of being indignant and aghast. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I'm I'm also I mean also the the JPL the JPL that exists I, we're looking at the past and the you know these these broad strokes from the past. But the, the current JPL, there are there are many. I mean, there are many women managers. It's a very diverse place. It's it's so different from the JPL with the concern about communist spies in the 1950s. And I'm very excited to be able to have a conversation with Dr. Leshin um, next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a pretty magical place. I, I'm a big fan of the JPL, um, and you know I've, I've been able to interview lots of people who work there, and I'm, it's always a delight. So uh, it's it's really interesting to see that that journey. You know, hearing about the 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 far far past of this place and and what it uh, you know what it came from and what it what changes it went through and all that kind of stuff is a it's always an interesting story to me. It is. Um, if if the listeners want to want to listen to your show, where where do they find it? Oh, what's, it's, um, you know, what's the, the story? The show the is called um, well, the podcast. It doesn't do me any good to hold up the logo on my coffee mug. No, no, no. <laughs> but the the show is called Lovely mug. Yeah. The, the the show is called Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, and it's part of LA Made, and it's um it's made by LAist L A I S T and KPCC, the uh, the which is Southern California Public Radio. And it's available everywhere you get your podcasts on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever. I was thrilled. I will tell you, I was very few things thrill me. You know, I'm blase. (laughs) Maybe I'm aghast a little at some of the Satan stuff, but mostly, you know, I'm not thrilled. What thrilled me, though, is that um, our podcast made NPR's list of the 15 podcasts to um, binge before 2023. And, and, oh, good, and good. no, I mean, because it's such a large field, as you know, since, you know, you have a following and a podcast. But the fact, the fact that, you know, this was singled out, I, you know, it, that was a cheery holiday present. Good, good, good. Uh, yeah. And so it looks like there's, you know, 12 episodes in this first season. They're still coming out. So there's still yeah, more right, to listen exactly, to. Yeah, right. And now. the one that dropped this week was, um, was very it was a, it was a really squalid L. Ron Hubbard one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny. I so I'm I'm Canadian and I just don't have that much exposure to Scientology. It's not quite as big up there as it is down there. But I'm I'm now remembering that the the first time I saw like a a Scientology. I don't know what you call it, a store, a church, whatever they had, some some facility that was open to the public. The first time I ever saw one was in downtown Pasadena. So it's uh, that's now my my memory is now connecting this all together. <laughs> well, I mean, there we and we follow up on Chin and we do have an episode on the Nazis. Um, Good. So I, I think we we cover we cover the bases, I hope. And I and I also think we do it in a way that it's incremental, where you really do start with the Halloween rocket test which, you know, demonstrates that this liquid fuel device can actually, you know, burn and create thrust. A static test, it was locked down. Funny looking thing that looks like a bicycle pump surrounded by sandbags. The next big marker <laughs> is probably the test of, of the of the Jados. Um, you know, would, would they actually work when lashed to the wings of a plane? And they did. And, 
you know, yeah. and so so it's it's broken down into kind of a digestible, and well, still pretty funny. Oh, and and it's also laced through with occasionally bitter memories of my father. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. No, it's really well put together. There's there's good stuff in it. You know, it's a good mix of like I said, your memories. There's some good interviews with it. There's historians who are are part of it. So I've enjoyed it so far. Um, and, uh, I'm excited for the rest of the, the pieces to come out. Oh. So, um, yeah. So thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I, I'm, it's been really fun to talk to you and, and really just scratch the surface of all this stuff. I mean, I, I hope the listeners are just like, what I need to, I need to hear more about that part. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on to share that with us. Well, thanks so much, Jake. I'll, you know, I, I, I have to listen to your show more often. I have to, I have to, <laughs> un, I, you know, my, as you can see from the wall behind me, I have a serious space hobby too. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to MG for talking with me and introducing this vast topic. Trust me, the podcast is very well organized and I think you'll enjoy it. If you want to spend time with other like-minded space fans, you might like our community Discord with exclusive access to our supporters on Patreon and elsewhere. We have channels dedicated to different space topics, live event, virtual parties, a fun space prediction game, and more. I've made some great friends over the years there, but I'm always interested in making more. And now we have a new way to join. So if Patreon isn't the right platform for you, you can now join directly through Discord and their premium membership program for just $4.99 a month. Just head over to offnom.com Discord and click the big green button. Have a great week and add Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.